This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Well, welcome back to 15-Minute History. I'm your host, Christy Flannery, and we're here today with Ashley Dean, who's wrapping up her PhD in the Department of History at Emory University. And Ashley is with us today to talk about globalization in the early modern world. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Christy. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. So we often think about globalization as something that is quite a recent phenomenon. Some people would even say that globalization began in the late 20th century with the end of communism in Russia and the fall of the USSR. But you're suggesting that this is actually a much older phenomenon. Well, yeah, actually, there's a lot of historical evidence to suggest that when we have when we have globalization, you know, that is the linkages of all major continents in permanent trade networks, that this can date to around, well, not around, to, to 1571 with the establishment of Manila as a Spanish outpost in the Philippines. Now, when we think of the Spanish, you know, when we think of them exploring, colonizing, you know, call it what you will, when we think of them, you know, establishing these new bases outside of Spain, we think of them as being in pursuit of what they call the three Gs, you know, gold, God, and glory in, in various orders, depending on who's saying it. What's actually more important in terms of, of metals is actually silver and not gold. Ashley, tell us about the world in the 16th century so we can get a sense of what it was like before these new linkages were formed between the Americas and China. Well, in the 16th century, there's already been uh, several decades of transatlantic travel, uh, you know, trade, um, ex- you know, I don't, I don't know if I want to say exploration, but uh, European expansion, I think, would be a better way to describe it. We don't have this happening in the Pacific, the best we have for the Pacific before this period, it's quite likely that Polynesian people had traveled through you know, a lot of the islands in the Pacific. They may even have made it to the American continents. There's persistent rumors that Chinese uh, sailors did as well. It's historic controversy. But for the most part in this period, the Pacific Ocean, has it hasn't been an aspect of, of this new rise in intercontinental trade and travel. So... In the Pacific in the mid-16th century is this interesting thing. You have on one side, we have the Ming Empire, which had been in power since 1368. It is a, a Han Chinese empire. You know, that is, it wasn't China ruled under the Mongols uh, as it was before. And the Ming Empire in this period, traditionally historians thought of it as being in a period of decline in the 16th century. That view has changed in, in recent decades. Uh, the Ming are now considered to have been very powerful, uh, very militarily advanced, and a major world power, if not the major world power in this period. We have the Ming on this one side of the Pacific, and on the other side, we have the Spanish Empire in the Americas, which has been established for several decades by the, uh, the mid-16th century. And it's part of an aggressive expansionist Spanish empire, uh, which in this period that we're talking about here of the silver trade, not only controls a large proportion of the Americas, but a large amount of continental Europe as well. This control and these this warfare in continental Europe is very important because it's where Spanish finances are draining to. When we're talking about, you know, the the terrible state of Spanish finances, it's because they're spending everything on these incredibly ruinous wars on the European continent. So, so silver 
drove the first globalization in the world. Absolutely. And, you know, we tend to, and I think particularly uh, when, when I was in high school, um, you know, throughout most of the 20th century, we think of this as a European-driven phenomenon, that it happens because these European powers are leaving Europe, colonizing new parts of the world, and this colonization, this this grabbing for, for gold, silver, you know, other precious metals is what's driving this. What is actually driving this is a major reform in the Chinese tax system around the same time. Huh. So tell us more about those changes. Well, this change, it, um, it's complicated. You know, everything involving this is complicated. China, when we, when we talk about Chinese money, Chinese currency, Chinese exchanges, we know one of the first things that comes up is that China is the first country to invent paper currency. And they're very famous for this. And then the problem with having a paper currency is the, the eternal temptation when things go badly to print up more of it. And this right. happens at the end of the Yuan Dynasty and the beginning of the Ming Dynasty. Um, there's serious inflation. There's serious financial problems. And they start printing up more and more of this paper currency and people lose their faith in it, as is, you know, that happens everywhere. So what happens is that China, they move from this paper currency to actual metals. And silver is, is one that they've chosen. And, the, you know, the reasons for that are complicated and not fully understood, I don't think. What happens during the late Ming dynasty, though, is there is a push from the center to reform the tax codes. And this is called the single whip reform in Chinese, the Bian Fa. And uh, what this does at the time when you were paying your taxes in Ming China, it would be, you would pay like a series of many different taxes and you would pay them in rice. What the Tian Bian Fa, the single whip reform does, it converts that unit, it, it converts them all into one payment and it converts the unit of payment from rice to silver. So suddenly people who've been paying tax in rice have to pay have to pay those same taxes to the government in silver. Absolutely. And in 1580 this becomes a law throughout the the Ming Empire. Huh. So so I guess it means that China is looking for a source of silver then. Yes, in a very fairly short period of time China needs a tremendous amount of silver. And where they get this silver, get the silver from two different places. Uh, one, Japan, and the other is from uh, Latin America. Hmm. So how does the silver get from Latin America to Manila? And also, actually, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the silver mines. Yes, in Latin I was actually going to suggest mm-hmm. we start with that. Well, you know, silver obviously comes from mines. Um, the most famous mine in this period is Potosi in uh, modern-day Bolivia. This is a mine that uh, – hold on, I have it actually written down – the altitude is about 15,000 feet. Um, when this mine's discovered in the mid-16th century, no, nobody was living there. But they, you know, the Spanish imported vast amounts of people. Uh, first, they tried African slaves, and then they they moved over to uh, to working Indians in these mines, to to working indigenous people in these mines. I, I think that the mines at Potosi can be considered one of the greatest human rights violations in Latin American history. The count for deaths at these mines in Potosi is uh, the usual figure given is about 8 million in this period. Um, wow. I mean, just for some perspective, the mines are actually still operational today. Uh, most of the silver is gone, but a few, uh, several thousand people still work in these mines. Today, in 2016, with all of our modern technology and uh, medical advances, your life expectancy in those mines, you're not going to make it past 35 or 40. 
Hmm. So it's hard, brutal work. It's brutal, terrible work. Um, you the, Usually the miners die of you know, lung diseases, accidents, that kind of thing. And then in the 16th century, it was it was much worse. So this this silver you know, that we're talking about, one of the things you always have to remember is that it comes at a terrible human cost. So the mines at Potosi are, are they're the most important. There's also mines in Mexico as well. Uh, what happens with these mines, how the silver gets from Potosi to China is, uh, well, it's a trade route known as the Manila Galleon. And this is a trade route that sails from Acapulco in Mexico to Manila and back um, once a year, one round trip a year uh, in the 16th and early 17th century, twice a year thereafter. Okay. And how long did that take? Because that's a very long way from Acapulco to Manila. Yeah, well, I mean, first the silver has to be shipped, you know, from, from Bolivia to Acapulco. And that, that adds, you know, a tremendous amount of time in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Just the actual route itself, we actually have pretty decent records for how long that took. Um, it's very dependent on, uh, on first of all, you know, individual factors like the weather, um, predation from pirates. Uh, Francis Drake was very well known for picking off returning Manila galleons in what's now California. So it varies. Uh, we're averaging for for the period I study in the late 16th century. We're averaging um, a return trip of uh, let's see, ignoring the fact that you typically you'll you'll stay in Manila for a few months. It's about six to eight months total sailing time. Okay, um, and that can vary wildly. It's much longer in the uh, 16th and 17th centuries because in that period the return route goes much further north than it does in the late 17th 18th century. So it's a very long trip. <laughs> so the silver is coming from silver mines in Potosi and Mexico to Manila. Mm-hmm. How then is the is the silver moving to China? Well, basically, um, Manila is functioning as this, as this giant trading post. I mean, there's a very active trade with Chinese merchants in Manila. Um, it's the silver trade, the trade between China and Spain. It's, it's a very interesting trade. When we think about Chinese trade. You know, in the pre-modern period, we usually think of it in terms of tribute, of you know, trade agreements. There's actually no formal, you know, treaty between Spain and uh, Spain and China in this period. Um, they did have one with Portugal. They don't have one with Spain, and this is this is a trade that's very lucrative and very profitable. And a lot of my research examines, you know, like why they don't do this, and you know how this ends up uh, falling apart. But um, anyways, I don't. I don't know if that's really relevant. <laughs> mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the short-term and longer-term impacts of this silver flow that's really flowing all the way from America through Manila to China? How is that changing people's lives in both Asia and the Americas? I think that you phrasing it as a short-term and a long-term question is really important because there's two very different outcomes. Um, in the short term, uh, generally, it's it's quite good. Uh, but for the first several decades after this trade begins, we have a tremendous amount of silver flowing into China. Um, in return, they're getting not just the, the luxuries that we think of Europeans being interested in, you know, silk, that sort of thing. We also get gold from China that sails back to uh, back to Mexico and then on to Spain. And in the short term, this is very lucrative for both countries, for both empires. However, it doesn't last. Like I mentioned before, there's a tremendous amount of silver pouring into China from not just Spain, but also from Japan. Over time, the amount of silver just becomes too much. It becomes a glut on the market, and the price of silver drops alarmingly. But all of these taxes and all of these wages are still being paid in silver, so it's worth less 
This leads in turn to more corruption, to less, uh, you know, less buying power. And in the long term, it weakens the strength of both the Ming and the Qing dynasties. In Spain, you have a very similar situation, except that as the value of silver drops, the Spanish become less interested in trading silver with China. And when this trade kind of dwindles, it has a terrible effect on the Spanish finances. And in fact, Spanish finances in this period are generally terrible to begin with. The Spanish Empire had multiple bankruptcies, even when the silver trade was at its most profitable. So, I mean, in a lot mm. of ways, the silver trade is, is very much propping up this empire that's you know financially in very bad shape to begin with. And when that silver trade finally, you know, dwindles and you know lessens in scope, it's very bad for Spain. And what about some of the cultural consequences of this exchange? Well, when we talk about cultural consequences, um, we, we look at it as being something on both sides of this of this large Pacific world. In China, you know, this this influx of silver, um, there's a lot of debate over whether or not it actually helps people on the ground in China long term. Um, we know whether or not it actually helps the individual economic prospects of people. In terms of cultural exchange, it actually fosters this very wonderful exchange between China and Latin America, you know, vis-a-vis Spain, of course. There's a um, you know, in exchange for silver, they're not only getting gold, they're getting luxury items, they're getting commodities. And what this does is it spurs an industry in China of producing and shipping out these commodities for a Spanish audience. So what kind of commodities are we talking about? Uh, you know, we have the typical, I guess the stereotypical things like silks, spices. You also have, uh, interestingly, you have this this growth in uh, religious items. Um, hmm. You know, icons, and I don't know if you call them icons in the Catholic Church, statuary, <laughs> uh, reliquaries, that kind of thing. And a lot of these mm-hmm. things are produced in China for, an, you know, for an audience of Spaniards uh, living in Latin America and in Spain. So you see these, these very interesting, uh, you see statues of the Virgin Mary, these paintings of the Virgin Mary, where she's actually, you know, she's being painted and portrayed by Chinese artists, and she's being portrayed in a style similar to the way they portray Guanyin, the Buddhist, uh, the Buddhist Bodhisattva of Mercy. Um, hmm. So there's there's this very interesting rise in Chinese produced, uh, you know, luxury items, uh, you know, religious items in Latin America. And was there a similar flow of European or American? goods um, going back to China? Not as much. Really, they mostly just want silver. Um, <laughs> Ming, uh, Ming and Qing diplomacy at this time involves gifts. So there's this, pres- there's this, uh, this theatrical aspect of this presentation of, of you know, luxury items from your home country. There's not a huge trade in actual European goods, um, not until much later in the, uh, the 19th century. So in the mid-16th century, we have China on one side of the Pacific Ocean, and the other side is this transcontinental Spanish Empire, but they're very much separate. Yes, they did not actually meet directly um, until the 1570s, when uh, when the Spanish were able to establish um, Manila as a trade base. Any ideas? Wrap up question. Uh, <laughs> You're gonna go out with a bang. Oh God! Shipwrecks. Oh God! <laughs> pirates. So, so um, much shipwrecking. So much pirates. Actually, I was just reading. There's some really interesting uh, research. Somebody went through, and they counted, you know, every single Manila galleon that sailed in the 16th century, and they calculated that the rate of shipwreck in this period is about one third. Gee. Yeah. 
I would not want to be on one of those. No, never. Not, not for your life. Um, but actually, uh, piracy is a huge problem on both sides of the Pacific. I mentioned Francis Drake before. Um, but in the uh, in the Chinese sphere, in the, in the Pacific, it's a major issue um, because of these restrictions on formal trade. This informal trade, this piracy springs up. And it, it only gets worse as the Ming collapses. So are we talking only Euro- only European pirates? No, no, no. Um, uh, Chinese pirates, Japanese pirates, Korean pirates, um, everybody. Pirates. Everybody, everybody could be a pirate. Maybe um, we should ask, maybe you can wrap up also by talking about, like, why, I mean, why do you think this is important kind of thing? You know, it's it's actually, it's the first major transoceanic trade. Um, this this predates the rise of the slave trade, what I guess what we call now the triangular trade in the Atlantic. Um, and actually, in a lot of ways, it sets a stage for it by, you know, establishing that this is possible. This this transcontinental, you know, across the ocean trade is sustainable long term and ultimately, at least in the short term, very profitable for both parties concerned. Okay. Well, thanks very much for speaking with us today. And we've all learned a lot about the first globalization. All right. Thank you for having me. This has been another episode of 15 Minute History. We'll see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, alignments to the Texas and National Standards for Social Studies, and links to more information on this topic, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's 15minutehistory.org. And for even more, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The University of Texas is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in this or any episode of 15-Minute History do not reflect the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its constituent colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.